Hello and welcome to That's Hockey Talk. We wanted to get this one out for you because it might be the last one for a while because there might not be a lot of hockey to talk about. Uh, Gumpy here with me, AQ, joining us via FaceTime, of course. Uh, Ty, running the back, back there. Uh, boys, the NHL has suspended their season due to COVID-19, the coronavirus. It's here. It's affecting everybody. Every major sport is shutting it down. And we knew hockey was no exception. It was just a matter of time. And here we are. They've, the NHL has announced they, they are putting the season on pause. Uh, we don't know how long. We don't know what's going to happen. I know they were searching for building availability within July. We might get an extended uh, regular season and some playoff games down the line. I can't, I can't imagine they would just jump right back into the playoffs if they bring it back. You have to give at least one or two more games to get their guys' feet under them, right? You can't just throw them right into the playoffs. You would have to think so. I mean, I, this is this is mind blowing to me. Um, I, I I don't I don't really kind of understand the 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 panic and the pandemonium that's taking this world by storm right now. But it is obviously something that we've decided to do, and so here we are, um, stuck without hockey, stuck without basketball, stuck without baseball. Golf's the only ones level headed enough to kind of keep their thing rolling right now. Um, it's also the only one though where there's not like major human contact. Like you can play golf without a gallery, and you can be on that course and, and not interact with people. I agree. I'm still going to say they're the only ones level-headed enough to kind of keep <laughs> this thing rolling. But uh, so here we are. We we got no sports for the foreseeable future except for golf. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, man. It's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting because I know they've they've talked about you know kind of going right into the playoffs, and I think that's going to be an absolute nightmare, especially for teams like uh like philly and some other teams who are super hot right now it's like you know you could kind of catch that cold spell and be you know whatever four and out immediately so um it's gonna be very interesting to see the way they handle this moving forward yeah i saw a couple different scenarios where uh people were suggesting maybe they just take all the teams even the couple teams that are outside of the playoffs right now but a few spots within reach within reason within points wise and do kind of like a play-in tournament and see who gets in, who gets out, and then hold the playoffs. I don't know how they're going to do it. Very excited and interested to see what they come up with so that we can just inevitably rip it apart on this show. But uh, for the sake of still giving you an episode, we kind of lucked out here. We're, we're going to get to talk to uh, Aaron Ward, former NHL defenseman. Now he works with the NHL in the uh, player tracking and stat tracking department. So well, let's dive into his life a little bit, his career, uh, his current post-playing career with the NHL. Uh, let's get Aaron online. Joining us now on the line, former NHL defenseman. He's played over more than 600 games in the league, 13 seasons, played for the Wings, the Hurricanes, Rangers, Bruins, and Ducks, and most important of all, three-time Stanley Cup champion. Now he works for the NHL in the uh, player and stat tracking department. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Ward. Aaron, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. How you guys doing? Fantastic, man. Thanks Thanks for coming on. Uh, I know things are a little crazy right now. We wanted to talk to you earlier this week, uh, but with the coronavirus stuff happening, things shutting down left and right, and obviously the league shutting or suspending itself basically today, shutting games down, uh, these are wild times. Yeah, actually, uh, uniquely, I uh, the, the player and puck tracking, the company I work for that's, that's partnered with the National Hockey League is called uh, Sports Media Technologies, and uh, you probably know them best for the yellow line in football. Uh, we okay. created that. We're uh, Pitch FX, which is basically the strike zone for baseball, uh, telemetry for NASCAR. And it seems like as the day went on today, I could sit and listen to all our 
you know, our, our chief executive officer, operations officer, all talking about all these leagues basically shutting down and uh, what it's going to do financially to everybody. So it's the craziness. Uh, I don't know what exactly took so long for the, uh, the National Hockey League to get to that place where they've decided that it's, it's time to move things. Uh, I heard this morning about 11.15 that the, the Rangers plane had actually turned around already and headed back to New York. But it's crazy if you think about it. I mean, we've, we've had kind of protocols set in place back when uh, uh, staph infections were the, the biggest concern. And now this is, uh, I think, something that athletes really have to contend with and uh, learn to deal with because to put your, your career on a hiatus and your season on a hiatus to get your focus again is going to be extremely tough. That's We were just chatting about that before you jumped on about uh, uh, we assume the season will come back. We hope the season comes back, but how will it come back? You know, Will they play a couple regular season games to allow these guys to get their feet back under them before they jump into the playoffs? The playoffs, obviously so important you don't just want to throw guys right back out there and and fire that up because guys it's an easy way for guys to get hurt yeah that's the key right now is the players association is clearly going to work with the league and they'll, and they'll sit down and set up a protocol i would guess my best guess would each team coming back would have probably a five-day grace period almost like a training camp and then get right back into it but again you're you're risking injuries on a level that you you're not going to be able to comprehend until you get down to that point because to shut your body down both mentally and physically and then to ramp it back up, I don't think we have a standard to compare this to. I don't. There's nothing in sports where all of a sudden every league is, is putting a pause down. No player is going to train himself in season like they would off season to prepare for games immediately. So I think the, the, uh, the, the sports scientists, um, the strength conditioning coaches, the medical staff for all these teams, they're the guys going to be taxed the most trying to figure out exactly how you manage these guys. I mean, you saw what happened last year with Kawhi Leonard and how they managed performance of an NBA guy. I mean, now you're looking at an entire team on how to approach it and best set your team up for, in, in some of these leagues like hockey and the NBA, your playoff run. And uh, I don't know, if it's, it's easy for the guys, like if you're Detroit, the Detroit Red Wings and the New Jersey Devils, take those days and go on vacation. Yeah, Literally go to the beach, right. who cares? You know, you're, you're trying to fail at this point, but for everybody else, it's serious business. Yeah, especially those teams on the playoff bubble. That's got to be tough. And then not to mention, uh, Mark Cuban talked about with the NBA, like people who just work in the arena and their livelihood probably depends on these games and everything. It's it's tough to see that happen with just the, the craziness and pandemonium going on. But uh, let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about uh, you, your career, and the game. Uh, you came into the NHL with the wings. You broke in uh, and experienced some success early on winning a couple cups. Uh, can you talk about your time in Detroit and what that was like for you? It was incredible. It's unfortunate now at 47 years old, I wasn't able to talk to my old self and tell myself to uh, to appreciate it more, right? So I got in at 24 full-time. I was with the organization, ended up getting traded from Winnipeg to Detroit, and immediately you know, I, I was at the University of Michigan, so I had the benefit of seeing local media and how the Detroit Red Wings were being embraced. And uh, when I got there, we were kind of on an upswing. Things were going well, but we couldn't get over the hump. And right. uh, I had kind of gone back and forth for three years between the minors and, and being up. And finally, in 96, 97, after the Claude Lemieux, uh, Chris Draper incident in the playoffs, I stuck there. And um, it was an incredible experience in that I, I learned a ton. I mean, if you think about from a, from a positional standpoint, to my left sat Nick Lidstrom, Vladimir Konstantinov, Larry Murphy and Slava Fetisov. And outside of Konstantinov, whose, whose career was cut short, I mean, those are, those are Hall of Famers. I had the privilege of playing with Coffey, uh, Mark Howe, uh, Ramsey, all these guys. And so I learned from the best. And then from, from on out from being a defenseman, you know, my, my stall was right beside Ted Lindsay. Um, 
I don't know if you knew this, in the, in the old days, in, in Joe Lewis, they used to keep it stalled for Ted Lindsay because he would actually come in and work out all the time. And it was an incredible connection as a young guy to the history of, of the Detroit Red Wings because he used to hold us accountable, right? He'd, he'd watch the games and he'd call you out the next day if he thought you were soft, like if you didn't, if you didn't take a fight <laughs> or you let a guy off the hook or, or whatever it was or your, or your entire team was hot garbage, he'd voice his, voice his opinion. Uh, but I had the, the likes of, you know, Eiserman, Shanahan, Fedorov, Larionov, uh, that, that taught me how to be a professional, right? If, if I learned to shut my mouth a little more and, uh, and listen a lot more, uh, a lot more too, um, there was a lot to be learned in that locker room. So that was incredible. And then you had, I mean, you had the icon in, in, in Scotty Bowman, right? Who, uh, who's kind of a, a dinosaur in the way he coaches in terms of how he deals with his players, you know, kind of that, um, keeps guys on edge. You never feel comfortable, never room for complacency, but brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Struggle with the personality, like we used to call him Rain Man, uh, because he did some odd things. But overall, as as a uh, as a Hall of Fame coach, and and a man who's who's basically stamped his, his name in the game, uh, that was an experience in his own right to see that that uh, you know as the decades went on, man, his coaching ability and his ability to read the game and and come up to, with a tactical way of of approaching an opponent was was just nuts. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, Aaron, take you here. So um, just pivoting a little bit off that. So as a, as a professional athlete, my, myself, you, I mean, obviously, anybody who's made it to this level, the ultimate goal is to win a championship, right? You've obviously won three of them. So can you talk a little bit about just uh, reaching the pinnacle, raising the cup, you know, not once, not twice, but three times, and just kind of talk about those experiences and kind of how they were may, maybe deferred? Well, they were all uh, they were all different in some some capacity. Like you're in Detroit, and there was an expectation, right? So we we got close in '95. I was there as what we call a black ace. The guys that got called up for the minors, and you sat there and you got to experience the playoffs. So I was I was part of it, but from a distance. Uh, in '96, '97, the city of Detroit. I think it'd been 47 or 49 years since they won the cup, and they were just starving. So there was so much talent and so much expectation that there was a ton of pressure. So when we finally won it, there was that exhale moment. And the coolest part about that was to see guys who, you know, they all, they all won individual trophies. Like Eisenman won, Shanahan won. Everybody had won something when, they, when the awards came out in the National Hockey League. But still, the elusive Stanley Cup hadn't hit them. And, and you could see it wore on them as a young guy that they were going to be judged. And they knew they'd be judged based on their success overall. So to see the relief and to go through those experiences with them, right? So you win the Cup and then all of a sudden – in a blue-collar town like Detroit where the fan base loves you based on not your, your star abilities or, or if you're known nationally. It's whether or not you put forth an effort they respected. And that was, that was pretty cool. Because I was a third-line player and, and when I was young, and, and I was embraced in the same level as, as the top guys. And that experience in its own right was great. And it allowed me, so when, in 96, 97, 97, 98 when we won, that was such a cool moment from the perspective of a young guy. And then I went through a dry period of, we, in fact, I got traded from Detroit to Carolina. We made the Stanley Cup Finals again in 2002, and I lost to my former team. And there was a, a litany of shoulda, coulda, wouldas, right? I could have been in that lineup. I could have been in that locker room, won my third. And 06 came around in Carolina, and it was a, it was a weird dynamic as an athlete to, to see the, the gathering of guys, right? We had kind of a motley crew of guys. One of the guys in our team, Ray Whitney, was getting paid by three different teams in the National Hockey League because he'd been bought out. Um, we had guys who were castaways but still had a lot to offer to the game. And collectively, the sum of the parts mentality that we had got us to a place where we truly believed 
And all we needed was that one component, and that was the uh, the head coach in Laviolette. Like, I still, to this day, at 47, if Laviolette told me that putting my head through a wall would, would lead to success, I would probably still do it. So in 2006, <laughs> we had Mayberry, which people coined uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, as is kind of a podunk hockey market, nothing's going to happen. And we, we, we basically put it on the map. We, we made sure that all those rumors about an organization moving kind of were, were, were gone. We swept it clean. And to win it, the coolest part now at 47 isn't like I've got my rings right in front of me. They sit on, they sit on my, my counter right beside me and by my bed in, in a box. That's not what I value most. The coolest part is I can be anywhere in society, anywhere in this world, anywhere in a hockey rink, run across one of my teammates, and it's like picking up, even though I haven't talked to him in 10 years, it's the same guy, and we have the same comfortable conversation because we all share the same memories. And that, for me, is I think probably the toughest thing when you walk away from the game is knowing that you're never going to have that camaraderie. So that's the coolest part about winning the Cup. Yes, it's awesome having a ring, but, but to have an experience with guys and know that you did it with them and you battled through everything and only you know the true, the, the true tests and trials that you had to encounter, that's the awesome part about winning a championship. That's absolutely awesome. Uh, when you left Detroit, you, were, you said you were traded to Carolina. That was during uh, around the time of the lockout, correct me if I'm wrong. What did you do during the lockout? Did you go play somewhere else? or, or did Actually, you... I was in Carolina. So 2005, I was in Carolina, and I sat around. Uh, I actually went back to Raleigh to, to train and keep myself in condition because I think truly – if you asked every single individual who was a paying member of the Players Association, we truly believed that the lockout wasn't going to continue on. We were going to have a season in 05. And I remember exactly where I was when uh, more or less the mandate went out on the Players Association email system that we need to tune in. Gary Bettman in January is basically going to come in and, and, and uh, or was it January or February? He's basically going to gas the season. And until he actually said the words, I didn't believe it. Now, I had a place to play, and I ended up playing in Germany. And God's honest truth, it was the most fun I've ever had playing hockey. Really? Like to oh, so imagine yourself if if I don't know if you're a soccer fan. I'm a massive soccer fan. I'm big on the EPL. I'm a Man U fan. Okay. And if you you're actually Liverpool truly guys. listen, oh, that's, that's my girl. My girlfriend's actually Liverpool. So um, we we uh, we disagree only in that in that area. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are clearly having a better season than all the rest of us. But. If you if you if you're beyond a soccer fan and you embrace the idea that there's a fandom to it, right? You you go out and you have the scarves and you gather amongst like people and the experience happens before the game, during the game, and after the game, and the singing happens. Transport that true that that entire experience and put it in a hockey rink with a roof on it, and it blows the doors off. So, I mean, at that point in oh five oh six, or sorry oh five. I had I had gone to Stanley Cups. I had I had experienced the pressure playing in front of people who chant your name, and at the end of the game, you you get down and as hokey and stupid as I thought it was leading into it, make you dance as a group in front of them. It's almost like an acknowledgement <laughs> of the fan base. Yeah, and yeah, it, it was so much fun, and it made me and it pulled me into being in an international city. And embracing the experience. I wasn't there just to pass the time. I quickly became, like, I played in Ingolstadt, Germany. And that's just north of Munich. And I played with a ton of NHLers, Andy McDonald, Marco Sturm, uh, uh, Jamie Langenbrunner. We all showed up there, and we had a blast playing. And, I mean, any city, when you win the country's championship, bring you to the city hall, put you out on a balcony, and encourage you to drink from a four-foot stein, <laughs> I'm all in. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so obviously one of the better times in your life there. So I, and I can also assume that you have no issue then with the hurricanes uh, kind of implementing the storm surge, which is kind of like a, almost like a European tradition uh, at their home games. Uh, at first I was kind of, I would say that I'm a purist at heart. Okay. Right. So, but I think yeah. you really have to understand the, the Carolina hurricanes as, as a fan base, as an organization, right? So, Never going to be original six teams. So you're not going to carve out the history and, and the respect them that way. Um, when you come to these games, people want to be entertained, and they truly, honestly, because it's a southern city, they want to have a connection with the players. And that's why I still live, actually, in North Carolina. I got traded here in 2001, ended up in New York, Boston, Anaheim, and I came back to Raleigh because of the fact that I am a part of the city. So what that is is bringing the fan base, again, into the experience. Like, the, the win is not just felt in that locker room it's felt in the building some of them are hokey right completely i'll acknowledge of course yeah but here's here's the truth there's a ton that goes into these things being set up like justin williams is a good friend of mine and he's the type of guy that will put some thought into it both in the like the city that you're in or i mean sorry the team you're playing against or the circumstance of st patty's day or or dodgeball or whatever this is a situation where these guys actually put great thought in, and they also scour um, the arena. Like, uh, was it Evander Holyfield was there? So they kind of set up something like that. They had yeah. a U.S. national women's soccer team player, so they got that. So these are all things that bring the fan base in. And, and honestly, if you're looking to grow the game in, in, in this area in North Carolina, you have to speak to the, to the youth of this area. Right? They have all kinds Makes of sense. options. Lacrosse is everywhere. Football is everywhere in North Carolina. You've got to draw them in. So if it's something that's uniquely North Carolinian and Don Cherry wants to take a dump all over it, <laughs> they actually comically embrace it and, 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 and you know, embrace the hate. And that's where it's kind of gone. Do I think it's going to run out and I think it needs to run out? Absolutely. But I think it served its purpose and, and brought some attention and some excitement to the city. Hey, Aaron, you uh, mentioned some of the great players you played with on Detroit. I'm just curious, throughout your career, was there one player who was maybe underappreciated by the media or just in general for how good he was? Oh, wow. Um, let's just start going through my brain here. Uh, you can say yourself, too. I mean, we're not going to hate you. <laughs> no, definitely not myself. Like I said, I feel fortunate uh, for my number of games. I, I actually did – someone at work actually reminded me that I almost played as many playoff games as I, as I did uh, regular season games. So uh, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that kind of career. I had a lot of great experiences. Like I can tell stories till we're all blue in the face. Um, some that can't be mentioned on, on radio or, or podcast necessarily, <laughs> but um, guy that's most underappreciated. I would see, he gets his just due, but the problem is he doesn't get the full, full due is, is Patrice Bergeron. Yeah. So I had him as a teammate in Boston and I knew a guy like that, right? So I had just come from Carolina, and I played with Rod Brindamore. And if you know the mentality of a warrior, this is the truest warrior that, that sits in your locker room. You look across at him, he could care less if anybody comes to his locker to ask him a question uh, about the game, whether it be media or, or whatever. He takes care of himself physically and mentally on, a, on, a, on an unbelievable level, right? So as I'm, as I'm packing down, you know, something fried, he's got a banana and an apple in a bag that he brought to the rink. Not something you associate with a professional hockey player, right? But he's seven steps ahead, both on the ice and off the ice. Um, and, and as a personality, he came to Boston not knowing a lick of English. Taught himself English, 
managed to place himself in, 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 into the hierarchy of leadership in, in that locker room as a young guy. And as an older guy, like, so I'm probably 35, 36 when, when I'm there, and there's, there's a good number of guys in that age category, we let him have his just due. Like, that is an incredible guy. Like, again, we talk about the guys that incite some level of confidence or inspiration in you. And I mentioned Laviolette. For me, Bergeron doesn't have to say anything because he does it with his, with his, by leading by example. And that, for me, is a guy that doesn't always get it because he's not asking for it. Yeah, he was huge for that Team Canada that year, and people actually doubted why he was taken, and he was massive for them. Yeah, and face-off face abilities are ridiculous. Like, I don't know how he does it, but, I mean, he cleans, he cleans the biggest and the fastest. They, they, <laughs> no matter what you throw at him, he beats them. All right, so let's talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing now. So uh, we're going to talk about kind of like the stat tracking and all that stuff, but the new puck and all that stuff. So um, I don't know if you had – if your company kind of had a say-so and or if the NHL kind of made that decision of it just getting introduced for the playoffs this year, if there is even a playoffs. But let's just assume there is going to be a playoffs and this new uh, puck gets introduced for the playoffs. How What what all is going to be kind of incorporated that you guys were involved with going in with this new puck? And I don't even know how much you can even tell. Uh, I can, I can get, so I'll give you the background. So we're the same company that did the World Cup of Hockey, right? So when, when Toronto and Montreal hosted in 2016, Team Europe, Young Guns, Canada, and Russia, and all those teams, it's the exact same technology. What the, what the league actually went down was looking at a different form of tech, technology, and that was using radio frequency. Ours is infrared, so it's an IR tracker. We have light pipes in a puck that emit light, and there's sensors, camera sensors in the ceiling that basically encompass the rink, and those cameras pick up exactly positionally where the puck is, both in X, Y, and Z, Z being the height. So the puck's there on the ice, and, and that's being read, I think it's about 30 times a second, and then the players have this... I would say it's about the size of half of a Snickers bar that slides into the back of their jersey. And we've had to contend with hockey hair, right? So hair blocks some of the light pipes, uh, the light emitted from, from the sensor. And it slides in the back of the jersey, and you can positionally find everybody. And from that, so much can be done, right? So where you have seven guys, I know if you, you know, you go up and press the press row and you see these guys, these older gentlemen generally wearing a black blazer, has the, the silver crest of the National Hockey League sitting there. And you put them in a room and they're tasked with the hits, right? So that's yeah. the scoring system for the National Hockey League. The scoring system basically gives you what you look at if you look at an event summary or game summary. You'll see uh, time on ice, hits, blocks, missed shots, shots, uh, power, any, any stat possible. Now, what has happened is there's some inaccuracy, right? So human error is natural. You get a guy that doesn't notice someone coming on. You got six guys on the ice. Um, th- there's all kinds that can go wrong. So when you start to vet this this human uh, kept stat, you can find massive holes in it. I was so going to say hits alone is, is absolute accuracy, very biased, right? So what's that? Hits alone, I feel like, is very biased. Like a, a lot of teams will juice their hit numbers. I feel like. Okay, and that, and so that there's 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 uh, blind spots to this. So absolutely, you'll get the most accurate time on ice, right? Yep. You'll know when the sensor's off the ice and on the ice. And there's even some uh, basic um, algorithms created so that if someone's coming on and someone's going off, they know how to interpret that, right? Uh, we even had a case where a goalie was leaning over the boards and they placed a sixth person on the ice. They'll know those those anomalies. So your hits your hits are good. Your shots. So the absolute accuracy, because we know the trajectory of the puck, you'll know if that's an actual shot on net. So whether you're purchasing middle of the ice taking stats or at the far end, 
you don't have to guess anymore if that goalie who did catch it made a save or just saved the puck that was going wide. Uh, you'll know the trajectory of the puck. So uh, whether, you know, the, how quickly it's, it's going up and ascending. Um, I mean, I, I got to limit how much I tell you because some of that stuff goes, but here's where it goes. So for accuracy of the stats that you and I will see, and uh, a journalist grabs and starts to assess a player based on, it, it, will, it will exponentially help you be certain that your, your, your assessment of a player's performance based on stats versus what you see in the eye, it, it'll, it'll tell you and you'll know that they'll match up. From an analytics standpoint, there's also software now where you can pick up possession. So because I know where the puck is, and now I know I can teach the software the behavior of that puck, I can tell you who possesses the puck. And so Ooh. now you're not having someone sit there and tap buttons, guessing where that, that, uh, that possession is. The, the software knows it, and that speeds up the game. So now you can event the game. I'll say the word event, like have events in the game and know there's, there's possession here, there's a turnover here, uh, there's a shot here. The software recognizes what the behavior of the puck is. So in terms of advancing the game, and its accuracy is great. And from that, everybody who's in anal- into analytics is going to be able to take it the next step, right? So those analytics can be basic, like shot. Like I can give you real-time shot charts. I can give you real-time uh, possession coming across the blue. Or I can go even deeper, and that's where my pay grade stops because the people who go and have, you know, get their, get their engineering degrees and, and their uh, master's and, and, and uh, PhDs and stats, that's where they step in. Oh, and yeah. that's where there's that's more or less a product that will end up going to individual teams. Big nerds. I love that stuff. I love the application of technology, and I love the, the well, NHL's going all in. I'll on say it. this. I'll say this. So I sat five years on, on, the, on, the, on the panel with TSN. And about my third year in, I was approached by the producer and said, hey, listen, how about you know, I just finished covering the, the lockout, and I taught myself all about the economics and the legalities of the collective bargaining agreement. He's like, well, what about stat? Uh, what about uh, analytics? And as a, as a, even though I went to college and I thought I've got a decent level of, of intelligence, I feared it, right? I was a former player. I'm like, God, I hate numbers, right? N- numbers can yeah. make you look really, really bad. But numbers can also make you look really, really good. So I had the fear that I'd be sitting on a panel and I'd be expected to explain what that analytic measure was and I'd look like a doorknob. So I steered away <laughs> from it and I, and I kind of slammed it a little bit like, oh, I'm, I only want the eye test. But the coolest part is when you finally open your mind up to it as a player or even a fan, it actually validates your opinion or discredits it. So if I'm a scout watching a player, and I think he had a pretty good game, but all of a sudden I look at his, his stats and it doesn't match up, it tells you to look deeper. If, if what I see analytically versus my, my, my assessment matches up, then I feel even more confident about that player, which allows you to assess your current players better and even your future players you know, Aaron, you talking about being a doorknob and, and accepting analytics sounds a lot like uh, the other guy that hosts this show with me and his reluctance to just accept that type of information and apply it because uh, AQ seems to be a little biased. So let me give you, let me give you my, my side on this. So it, obviously in the NFL, right, like there's, you know, I just finished my 11th season going into my 12th season here. And so like with analytics, analytics has kind of come heavily into the NFL and you got this pro football focus you got all these football outsiders you got a bunch of different people that are coming up with these numbers but my biggest thing and i don't again obviously the difference between football and hockey i don't know how much different it is in terms of scheme in terms of plays in terms of things like that but i just have a hard time in my sport understanding how uh 
you know, certain guys may look at it and grade a film, but they have no idea what our scheme is. They, they could look at it and say, oh, well, the left guard went the wrong way there, when really he could have just missed a call because he doesn't know – that guy doesn't know what the scheme was. I don't know if that makes sense to you or if that even applies to the hockey side of analytics. 100%. But, yeah. 100%. Because yeah. here's the thing for me, right? So my, my true belief is everybody in every extreme is going to argue their point, but if you can find a middle ground, I completely agree with what you're saying because – when, when you start to assess one guy versus another, how do you know that that guy's not getting matched up against the top line every single night? He might be a, a second-pairing defenseman, but he's got, the, he's got the number one matchup every night. There are factors that, that, that can't be quantified. Like, so I also know, and this is the argument that you usually get from athletes, I'm expected to do certain things i got to do them well. And maybe they don't translate to numbers, but my impact on my, on my bench and in my locker room is completely different. If I'm a gutty guy... And I'm going out there and I'm laying down and blocking shots. That's, that's, you know, that's not the most important measure. That's just a stat that comes up on a score sheet that doesn't come into analytics. So for me, I believe there's a happy balance. I, I don't believe that numbers prove one thing, but I also don't believe that you, you can't take into account those numbers. And your, what your assessment is, is very accurate. Like you don't know if I'm told I'm not supposed to, well, I don't want to use that term, but I'm not supposed to possess the puck at some point that I have to headman it and I'm never really holding on to the puck. Well, my possession numbers are going to be hot garbage, right? It's just, that's the way it is. Yeah. Makes sense. Speaking to those little points, like you just mentioned, those little things in the game and things you're asked to do that don't necessarily show up. Did you get in any scraps? Were you, were you in a couple fights in the league? Uh, I got the crap. So March 26, 97, when we had that brawl with uh, Colorado. Yeah. Um, so Mac, I used to drive to the rink every game with McCarty and Draper and I sat in the back. I was the youngest guy. I was almost like, it was like driving Miss Daisy, right? I had to sit in the back and I never had any veteran status to be able to sit in the front seat, but they had on the way to the game, I guess they had kind of decided something was going to happen. I don't think they knew what was going to happen, but they decided Mac was going to do something about it. So it would have been nice that they told me. Because come second period, so after Mac grabs Lemieux and the Comerica sign, I still remember the sign to this day. There's weird things that you remember. It was a blue and white sign for a bank in, in Detroit. And then all of a sudden, as I looked down, I realized it was no longer blue and white. It was completely red, covered oh. in blood. And that was my oh shit moment in my life when I was like, what the hell have I got myself into? So I'm 227. I'm a bigger guy. We get out there in the second period. And Larry Murphy, who's almost 40 at the time, is on my right side. And I look over and I realize, oh, crap, Brent Severin, who weighs 247, not only doesn't have his elbow pads on, he doesn't have his shoulder pads on, which is the, the you know, the giant beacon of light that says, I'm about to fight someone. So <laughs> I, learn, I say over to Murph, I'm like, hey, Murph, anything happens, I, I got it, I get in there. So sure enough, scrum happens in the corner. It's Severin. Now, I'm all set because I know I'm going to about to fight a guy that's going to kick my ass, but I'm going to take a few, and, and then that'll be good. I grab him. I get his jersey. I think, oh, my God, I got a really good jump on him. I pull back to throw a punch, and off comes his jersey. Oh, Nothing, no. no player in it, just him. All I got to hold on to is chest hair now, and I'm not grabbing his chest hair. <laughs> so qualify this that moron Thomas Holmstrom started a fight with Mike Keane, so now – I have no linesman to, to break up my ass whooping. So they go over and do that. So at that point, I think Brent Severin hit me 10 times. I counted the black flashes <laughs> in my head. And the referee at the time finally breaks it up. And I think Severin just got tired of hitting me in the head. And he, and, and he's, he puts his hand between us, 
and I'm groggy, and he looks at us, and he swears, he goes, if you guys throw one more fucking punch, you're both gone. I look at him, and apparently, I don't remember saying this, the guy, I'm totally groggy, I'm like, yeah, quit hitting me. So, <laughs> Severn kicked the living crap out of me. But, so I learned, I learned that fighting was done as a necessity, not as a desire. There for you me. go. Uh, to follow up on that, even, what was your relationship like with the refs? Were you a guy that like, tried to build a relationship with the refs? Did you try and talk to the refs and linesmen, or was it just like, uh, just go out there, see what happens? Um, I'm a pretty competitive guy, so sometimes I think my emotions get the best of me. I've said some things I, I regret, and I'll tell you a, a good story. But linesmen I was great with because I used to joke with them. Right? So a lot of linesmen in the National Hockey, Hockey League are regional. Right? So the same guys would do the Florida, Atlanta, Carolina, Tampa region. Right? So you get them oftentimes. Yeah. Uh, referees would shoot around a little more. So uh, Bill McCreary, game six in Buffalo, conference finals, we get scored on in overtime. Now, I'm, I'm out there, and I get absolutely blown up on a pit at the blue line. Like, this would normally be called. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm the podcast, so I can swear, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, let it fly. All right, so I motherfuck him up and down. And, like, I don't let him even get off the ice, and I'm still, like, I'm just going at him. So I think I'm good, right? So I show up for game seven, look at the, look at the list, you know, the pregame list yeah. of, of their lineup, ours, Bill McCreary has game seven. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I'm walking around, and I'm no word of a lie. Anonymous person walks up to me and says, hey, Wardo, come here. Go what? He goes, uh, I think it might be in your best interest to meander down to the referee's room, the other side of the Zamboni room, and maybe have a word with Bill before the game starts. Dude, I, I fucking hucked it over there. I was like in a sprint. Just – Apologize. I was almost on a one knee asking him to marry me. I was, it was it was it was pitiful. So <laughs> I just made sure I didn't get I didn't get killed in that game. I think I only took one penalty and I deserved it. So yeah, I, I uh, referees referees like players. I think also have the same egos as us. A smart move, by the way. It never hurts, you know, to just kiss up a little bit, just to, you know, even the, even the playing field a little bit. Uh, just see our fearless leader Pat McAfee popped in. He's got a couple questions for you, Aaron. How you doing? Fantastic that you've joined That's Hockey Talk because right now while the NHL and hockey completely dies because of the coronavirus, getting a legend like you on here really means a lot. I appreciate you. I, I have a question. How come, yeah. how come Ovi took that Stanley Cup celebration to a whole nother level, like a whole nother level? You won three cups. Is there stories about celebrating with Lord Stanley that don't get leaked? And was the Ovechkin celebration more than normal, or is that just it was more publicized than regular? Uh, I think it was just more publicized. I think okay. it's more acceptable nowadays. Um, so what we got away with in our day, and I'll, I'll give you a story, but I won't give the name that's comparable, but um, – the assumption now is these guys can never get away with anything. No matter where you are, if you think you're, you're tucked away, there's either a security camera or someone with a camera out. So I think Ovi, it's, it's, it's a combination of a couple of things. When you got Don Cherry up in, in, in Canada chirping you about it'll never get done because of you, I think, honestly, that was just his moment, right? It's uh, let loose. He's heard it forever. Uh, the Washington Capitals had been on the cusp, and everybody is trying to find, if you watched kind of from a, a, a player personnel and how many times they brought someone in thinking this was the guy that was going to get him over the hump. It started to probably wear on Ovi that the assumption was it's not who you bring in, it's who you currently have. And I know there was a good number of people that pointed to him 
kind of along the lines of some of the other guys, right, that, that have played. Like, Iserman had to change his game in order to win. Mm. People were questioning Obi whether or not his game was, was capable of letting the Washington Capitals get to that place. So I think that release and what you saw is part of his personality. He just doesn't give a shit. And the other truth is it's a giant middle finger to everybody over time, and it's been a long time that just absolutely badgered him about being Russian. There's a stigma about being Russian. Now, I played with five and, and, and one in 96, 97, but that guy had more of an outgoing personality. Ovi does. I mean, just he's out there. You see what he posts on there. So uh, in terms of stories, I mean, if, if you honestly could get people to write a book about the Stanley Cup, like I've heard about the Stanley Cup being at the bottom of the pool, and because of suction, they had to get a, a tow truck to pull it out. I think it was Phil Bork <laughs> of the Pittsburgh Penguins. So when they, they didn't account for the fact there's suction, right, and pressure, that by the time they got the cup to the top of the water, now I don't know if it's urban legend, but I was told that the top of the cup shot clean off into the air. Um, <laughs> the only story, and I won't say if I was there to witness it or I wasn't, but I've got details so you can draw your conclusions, the, the cup ended up in a strip joint in Detroit. Let's go. And on, on a dare, somebody said to this individual player, there's no chance you'll get up on the stage and dance with a cup. Okay? And that's the PG version of what was said. <laughs> and that guy decided, not only am I going to get up on the stage and, and, and do that with a cup, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to exchange clothes with one of the strippers, and I'm going to put her gear on. <laughs> so this guy had on thigh-high patent leather white boots, like literally, a G-string with both testicles kind of hanging off the one side and a push-up. And, oh, my God, thank God there was no such thing as a camera phone. Oh. Lord Stanley didn't deserve that. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. No, wait. He didn't do anything to Lord Stanley. He just simply he, we danced up there. There, there. We had the cup keeper there. There was integrity maintained, so let, okay. me, let me qualify that. Okay. Just, just the fact that, that the, there was an individual up there dancing was enough for me. Well, but I wasn't there, maybe. I appreciate you taking time today, and thanks for that answer. Yeah, always. Aaron, we got one more before I let you go. It's something. It's kind of a staple question here. We're asking every guest: uh, if the league was playing right now, if there, if you were put in charge, if you were commissioner for a day, if there's one thing you could change about the NHL right now, what would it be? Oh wow! Um, wow, wow, wow! I would, I would probably go with no shootout. I would just okay. I would actually, I would start four on four. Well, no, that would the players' association would go get. I would, I would make the the three on three ten minutes. There's no chance that a game can go three on three without a goal. True. I mean, if you, if you're if you're playing happen. the numbers right, someone's going to get tired, someone's going to lose their coverage, and there's going to be a breakaway at some point. So I would get rid of the, the the shootout. It's just for me, it's too artificial. And if you're coming down to the end of the season, and I knew this years ago when they implemented the the, the shootout that. Guy, teams were actually looking for a guy who was good at shootouts. If if you get in or don't get in based on one guy missing one shootout shot and don't win it the right way by having that competition, there's no team concept to a shootout, right? Three-on-three three is still a team concept. Someone has to either do their job or not do their job, and that's the way you should lose, a, lose or win a game. I respect it. Solid answer. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we're yeah. moving that way, anyways. I think you're going to see the shootout get eliminated here in the next couple of years. Uh, who knows? It might be gone by the time the league comes back. The way things are going, but Aaron, can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day. I know things are crazy with the coronavirus and all the work you're doing with the player and stat tracking. Uh, thank you so much uh, for everyone listening. You can follow Aaron at NHL underscore Aaron Ward on Twitter. Go give him a, go check him out. Uh, follow him along. Uh, thanks so much, man. We appreciate it. Anytime, guys.